And I hope you've been both blessed as well as challenged this fall as we've studied together the book of Acts and what it means for us to be the church, not just as we gather together, but as God calls us to live it out the other 167 hours of the week, wherever he's placed us. Well, I don't know about you, but growing up, when I thought of church business meetings, I thought one word, boring. Right, I would go and when my parents would sneak me to a service and I would think, why are we going tonight? We don't normally go tonight. And then you'd sit down and you'd go, oh no, this is why we're here tonight. And you would hear people talk for hours and hours about seemingly pointless things to you as a child. I looked up this week and one denominational leader pulled some of his pastors to find things that had been discussed. One church had a several hour discussion on the type of donuts they should serve on a Sunday morning. Which makes sense, right, Pastor Larry? That makes sense. Another one on whether the church lawnmower blades should be replaced now or next year. Unfortunately, though, the meetings that we wouldn't call boring were often exciting for the wrong reasons. Because often when Christians disagree with each other, it leads to immaturity and it leads to people doing things that don't honor Christ. The well-known pastor down in Atlanta, Charles Stanley, recalls some of his first church meetings. He was in a very contentious congregation at the time. And he was in a meeting that was trying to approve some new leadership in the church, to appoint some new deacons and elders and deaconesses to help guide the church there. And of course, this ruffled the feathers of some of the people who are already in leadership. And as he was standing on the platform of his church presenting this, one of the members of his congregation walked up onto the platform and punched him in the face. As a pastor, I think boring business meetings are okay. If boring means no pastors are getting punched in the face, they are fine by me. Unfortunately, though, often disagreements in the church lead to disunity in the church. And oftentimes when things happen where good Christians disagree, rather than bringing us together, it separates and it divides us from each other. If you have your Bibles this morning, would you open them please to the book of Acts, the book of Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. We're going to look this morning at a significant disagreement amongst the early church. And it's important for us not only to look at what was discussed, as it's extremely important, but also the implications and how the parties were to carry themselves out as a result of the matter at hand. Well, last week we we were in Acts chapter 10, as Pastor Larry preached for us, and we saw the gospel go to Cornelius, and the Gentiles received salvation, and the Holy Spirit came upon them. After this, there was rising persecution in the city of Jerusalem. And then Paul, accompanied by his companion Barnabas, were sent out on what's known as the first missionary journey, as they traveled north up into most of what is modern-day Turkey and spread the gospel primarily to Gentiles throughout the land. And God did an amazing work amongst them. Chapter 15 picks up approximately 10 years later than Acts chapter 10. So 10 years has passed, and Paul and Barnabas find themselves in the city of Antioch. Acts chapter 15, verse 1 says this. 
But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. See, this might sound very odd to our Western ears, but for the Jewish believer of that time, they seemed like this was an ordinary thing. See, circumcision in the Bible goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 17, when God gave it to Abraham as a sign of the covenant that he made with him. And it was an extremely important thing for the Jews to show a physical symbol of the inward change of their hearts in following God. It's why when the people led by Moses and then into, with Joshua were entering the land that they reinstituted circumcision, it was important for them. And if any Gentile, God-fearing Gentile, wanted to follow God, they were allowed to, what would become known as a full proselyte into Judaism. But one of the requirements was, is that you be circumcised. And they are saying that now it's still necessary, even after Jesus has come, it's still necessary for them to practice circumcision. Verse 2, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the, conversa- the conversion excuse me, of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. And so the first, if you would, church business meeting assembles. The church business meeting assembles. Paul and his associates travel a few hundred miles south to Jerusalem. Elders, leaders are gathered together to discuss this issue. It's of such importance to them. And in chapter 5, or excuse me, in verse 5, we see the, the matter at hand. It says this, But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. A few things that we need to observe here in verse 5. First, these are believers amongst the Pharisees. These are believers in the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. They're not trying to pull Jesus away from these people's faith. But rather what they're saying is, we believe in Jesus, but instead we got to add things on. Notice they're not saying that, oh, if it would be helpful perhaps if they were circumcised and followed the law of Moses. What did they say? It is necessary. It's required for salvation that they not only are circumcised, but going along with it, follow the Old Testament law and commandments that were given by Moses himself. So the council begins, the business meeting, if you would, happens. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter We remember Peter, Peter, the the leader amongst the disciples, the apostles, the disciple who walked on water, who journeyed with Jesus, who had a powerful transformation from meeting the risen Lord. Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word. Now notice here, What Peter is referring back to is the the text we looked at last week in Acts chapter 10 with Peter with Cornelius. But Peter is saying this, 
Whose decision was it for me to go to Cornelius? Whose decision was it for the Gentiles to hear the good news? It was God's. Peter's saying, this isn't a decision that I made or anyone else made. This is a decision that God made, that the gospel should go to the Gentiles. And they heard the word of the gospel and they believed. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? This is a cautionary phrase. Why are you putting God to the test? This yoke, the burden of the law that, wasn't even, that couldn't even save us. We needed more. We needed salvation from Jesus. Why are you asking them to do the same? And this powerful verse in verse 11, which concludes his talk. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. In this passage this morning, we're going to look at three keys to unity in the church. And the first key that we see in this passage is that we need to embrace God's grace. That we need to embrace God's grace. Notice what Peter and the other apostles and church leaders argue. They're not saying that we should have unity in the church at any cost. No matter what, no matter what you believe, that we can all be united as one. No, what they are saying is it's the gospel that matters at any cost, above all else. And we cannot compromise the gospel for the name or sake of unity with other people. We cannot compromise the gospel to say that we want to be united to others. And what was happening wasn't just a disagreement above believers, but it was the essence of the very gospel itself. And the question was this. Was Jesus alone enough for salvation? Was Jesus alone enough for salvation? Or were certain things required to be added to it? They were trying to say, Jesus, yes, but let's add in circumcision and the law keeping on top. And that's how one is saved. We cannot and should not add anything to the gospel. But in our world... There's a temptation to add things to the gospel that other believers do subtly, yet we need to be on guard against these things in our world. The first is that often added to the gospel in our today, we see a gospel of Jesus plus works. Jesus plus works. People often trying to emphasize that your, your relationship with God changes how we live our lives, and it does. But my friends, if you're believing that somehow anything you can do can add to what Jesus has already done, you are sorely mistaken. The gospel says, not by works of righteousness which you have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Going to church, serving the poor, loving the homeless, Whatever it is that you do that you think will get you closer, that that you have to add on to your salvation with Jesus, it's not true. Jesus plus works is not the gospel according to God's word. It's just Jesus alone. Not only that, but we see among some this Jesus plus the feelings that I have to have for him. 
that our faith has to be an emotional experience. And that if we don't feel loved by God, if we don't feel like we're saved, if we don't feel the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, then somehow we need to muster up this feeling for it to be true in our lives. We'll ask anyone who's been in a relationship for more than a couple weeks. No relationship lasts on feelings alone. My friends, the grace of Jesus means that when you place your faith in him, you are saved whether you feel like it or not. We don't have to chase an emotional experience to add on to what Jesus has done for us. The other danger that can get added to the gospel today is Jesus plus tradition. Jesus plus tradition. This one's so hard for us. Because traditions become so ingrained into who we are. For many of us, it's the only way that we've known things for decades of our lives. And they're so hard sometimes to give up. But so often, we we can accidentally teach that, yes, you're saved by Jesus, but now you have to dress this way. You have to look this way. You can listen to this type of music. You can eat this food. You can go here. And you can't do all these other things. You have to sing these type of songs, but not with these instruments. And so on and so forth. And we've, we've elevated the traditions that we've grown up with to make them along and necessary for the gospel. My friends, the Jesus plus gospel is no gospel at all. The Jesus plus gospel is no gospel at all. It no longer is good news if there's something that we have to do to add on to what Jesus has already done for us. The gospel is good news precisely because of this. It says that humanity is broken in their sin and incapable of following after God. And it's good news because Jesus took the initiative and showed grace towards us. And it's through his sacrifice on the cross and through his resurrection that sin can be paid for and be defeated and that you and I can have new life in Christ. We must not add to the gospel. So this morning, are you trusting in Jesus alone or Jesus plus something else? Are you trusting in Jesus alone or are you trusting in Jesus plus something else? And for those of us who would say we're trusting in Jesus alone, has God's grace humbled our lives like it should? Has God's grace humbled our lives like it should? It was the great English preacher Charles Spurgeon who said, God's grace puts its hand on the boasting mouth and shuts it forever. Such a great picture of what God's grace should do to the boasting and the pride in our hearts. It should cultivate amongst us the humility in realizing that we are saved not because of what we've done, but only what Jesus has done. When God's people begin to understand and embrace the grace of God, it's when unity in the church is possible. But we must not compromise the grace of God. We must not compromise the gospel in order to try and seek or to attain unity with others. Well, Peter has given his speech, and now others follow. It says this, verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas. He was a companion of Paul's and went out on the missionary journey with him. Barnabas and Paul, as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. 
After they finished speaking, James replied. Now, this is the first time in going through the book of Acts that we've run into James. He shows up, I believe, in chapter 12 as well. So who is James? Who's this guy? He's a leader in the church in Jerusalem. But I think more incredibly is this. James is the half-brother of Jesus. Now, this is amazing because here's the thing. If any of us were to get up this morning and claim that we are God, the first people to get up to refute that would be our relatives. Right? If I were to get up to say, I'm God, my brother, my wife, everyone would be right behind me like, no, 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 no. Let me tell you the real story. Not God. I can tell you that. James, whose brother is Jesus, has converted and lends his life to serve the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. He believes that his brother, Jesus Christ, is God. It's a powerful testimony for who Jesus is. So he says this, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that's Peter, has related to how God first visited the Gentiles with Cornelius to take from them a people for his name. An important phrase that was set for people who were set aside for God, this idea that a people who are God's very own possession, that are his, that are by his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And he goes to Amos chapter 9. He says this, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. This is a powerful thing that James says. He pulls this idea that the Gentiles will become the people of God all the way back from the book of Amos. And he could have picked many different Old Testament references in the prophets. The first verse in verse 16, he focuses on this idea of restoration, of being rebuilt, of being returned. And in it is this tent of David or the house of David. What the prophet is referencing back is the house of David that was promised to King David in 2 Samuel 7, that he would have one who would reign forever from his lineage. It's a reference to Messiah. It's talking about Jesus. That when Jesus returns, things would be restored, and as a result of that, the remnant or the rest of mankind may see the Lord, including all the Gentiles who are called by the name of Jesus. The second key to unity that we see in this passage is to realize your identity. To realize your identity and who God has now created you and I to be. Jesus did not come so that the Gentiles could become the Jews. He came to create for himself one new people. And that's you and I, that's the church. And we must understand the identity of who we are now in Jesus Christ if we're to experience unity in the body of Christ. See, these other believers were placing their Jewish identity at the core of who they were rather than their identity with Jesus Christ. And it was causing them to misunderstand the significance of who they now were now that they were found in Jesus Christ. The Gospels are filled, and the New Testament is filled with ideas of who we are now that we belong to Jesus. 
A few references in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes this. He says, talking about Jesus' work on the cross, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that Jesus might create in himself one new man in place of the two. And he's talking about Jew and Gentile here, so making peace. His goal wasn't to create one or the other, but to make one entirely new man. In the book of Galatians, Chapter 3, after talking about the law, he says this, that now with Jesus there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now he's not saying that your ethnicity or your gender or your status somehow no longer is true of who you are once you're a believer. But what he's saying is this, the markers by which our world would say that's the core of who you are is no longer the core of who you are, but it's now Jesus who's at the center of our identity. You're still a Jew or Gentile, you're still male or female, but that doesn't define you anymore. Your Savior now defines you and who you are. Jesus needs to be at the center of our identity, each and every one of us, for us to experience unity in the church. And so many of us, experience conflict in our lives, and we experience conflict with one another because we've misplaced our core identity onto something other than Jesus. The difficulty here is this. The things that we've misplaced our identity on are often good things, but we make them ultimate things in our lives. Family is good, but if family is your identity, you're not following God how you would. God's called you to work in a career, and if you're a student, to study, but that's not the core of who you are. So many of us maybe think our culture, our ethnicity, or maybe even our happiness, that's at the center of who I am. But it's not. Jesus, if you're a follower of Christ, Jesus is to be at the center of who you are. And our identities are now found in him. And we experience unity in the church as each and every one of us start to realize the power of the fact that we are in Jesus Christ and what that means for us. To keep Jesus at the center of our lives requires a daily commitment and a daily decision to follow after him. See, the decision to follow Jesus must be an everyday decision. Too often we've reduced Christianity to a one-time prayer that I prayed. And now we live our lives with ourselves or something else as the center of who we are. And we forget that Jesus calls us not just to commit to him one time, but to commit to follow him every single day. If you and I are not practicing this in our lives of submitting ourselves to Jesus daily, we will naturally substitute other things into the center of our lives. Each of us struggles from gospel amnesia. We wake up in the morning and we forget what God's done for us. And until we remind ourselves of that, we'll live our lives thinking it's all about us. But the decision to follow Jesus must be an everyday decision to seek after him. Well, James finishes his speech in verses 19 to 21. He says this, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. They don't need to be circumcised. 
They don't need to practice the law as was required of Jews. But should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. The third key to unity that we see in this passage, the third key is to practice sacrificial love. That is the church of Jesus Christ, we are called to practice sacrificial love for one another. James finishes with this conclusion, Gentiles do not have to follow the law. They don't, aren't required to be circumcised. But then he goes on and says to the Gentiles, but you need to do these things. And it's confusing. Well, why does he talk about these things polluted by idols, from this immorality, from things strangled and from blood? It seems like James is saying two separate things. You're free from the law, but follow the law. And we could look at this and be like, what is he doing? Can he not make up his mind here? Is he trying to be a politician and just make everyone happy at the same time? What is he doing? This is what James is doing. James is saying this, for you Jews, you need to realize that the Gentiles don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to follow the law. That will require sacrificial love of you to learn to accept them. But for the Gentiles, to whom he writes, for the Gentiles, you need to realize that these four things are extremely difficult for them to see. And they're, what you need to practice is a sensitivity and a generosity toward your Jewish brothers. And you actually need to give up of your own rights as well. He's not commanding them to follow the law. He's commanding them to love their fellow brother and sister in Christ. His command is to love. Gentiles were called by James here to be sensitive and generous toward their Jewish brothers in Jesus Christ. Because if we are not called, if we're not mandated to follow the law, the question we should ask ourselves is then, what is the ethical expectation that Jesus has for us? What is the ethical expectation that we should think, okay, if, if we're not under the law, what are our guidelines then and how we should live and treat others? Paul summarizes it this way in Galatians chapter 5. He says, you were called to freedom, brothers. We're free from the law. Only do not your, use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He echoes Jesus, who when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the rabbi sat there and nodded, yes, yes, indeed. And then he said, and a second is like unto it. And they said, What? And Jesus said, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. On this depends all the law and the prophets. Our ethical expectation now that we are in Christ is to love one another. We have freedom from the law, but it's not to do whatever we want. It's a freedom to show the kind of love that has been shown to us. And talking about this expectation that Jesus now has for believers. I love this question that one author, he summarizes it all in this question. He says this, the question we need to ask ourselves is this, what does love require of me? What does love require of me? And James was asking to the Jewish believers, what does love require of you? You need to not demand things that aren't demanded by the gospel. 
But to the Gentiles, what does love require of you? It it requires you to give up of some of your freedoms out of love for other people. What does love require of us? Where do we need to focus on showing this kind of love in our church? What kind of conflicts do we have that both sides need to learn to be sensitive and generous towards one another with? I think of the beauty of our multicultural church that we have, and that we're a church that has people worshiping here from over 70 different nations of origin. And we all know, right, that even if you're from the same nation, it doesn't mean you're from the same culture. I'm from Southern California. My brother, Pastor Eric Targe, is from New York City. We might be from the same country, but we are from different worlds, let me tell you. And we come to church often, And so much of what we desire, what we expect to happen amongst each other is set not by biblical things, but by cultural expectations. And what the Bible calls for us to do is for us to be sensitive and generous to one another who come from different cultural backgrounds. Not demands that it be like how it always was for us, but to have a spirit of sensitivity and generosity and love towards others. We're a multi-generational church. Did you know that scholars say this is the first time in church history that we've had five generations of Christians who worship together on a Sunday morning? There's those of the greatest generation, 70 and up. You have the baby boomers in their 50s and 60s. You have Gen X in their upper 30s and 40s. You have those crazy millennials like me in their 20s and mid 30s. And then you have Gen Z. And so often in generational differences is we, we understand pretty well the generation that's on either side of us. But when you get two or three generations removed, there's a lot of generational conflict. And it's why the greatest generation is looking at millennials and is like, what's going on with these people? Why are they moving back in with their parents? What are they doing? What's going on? It's why baby boomers look at teenagers today and are like, why won't they get off their cell phone? What is happening with these kids? What's going on? What does the gospel say to our generational conflicts that are bound to happen in a church like ours? It's saying both sides need to live with a spirit of love for one another. That perhaps those of an older generation need to give up some things that they've always known about church out of love. And perhaps a younger generation, some things that they would really want, they need to give that up out of a spirit of love for the saints in our body who are older and more mature than they are. That a spirit of love would capture this place. What does love require of us? Not just when we're at church, to gather together, but when we're living out, when we are the church, the other 167 hours during the week. A man who's greatly helped me think about what love looks like in our world is a man by the name of Bob Goff, who's a a lawyer who's written several Christian New York Times bestsellers. And he just talks about what it looks like to love God in our world. And in his most recent book that came out, that he talked about this story. He's he's worked for several years, a couple decades actually, helping with, with work in Uganda. And he's become a lawyer over there as well. And he talks about how there's this culture of fear around the witch doctors in Uganda and how they would commit child sacrifices, but out of fear, no one would report it and they never were were given any, even brought to a trial, let alone committed any crime. 
but it's chance had it. That a witch doctor abducted a child, an eight-year-old boy, tried to kill him, but the boy lived. And Bob got the call, and he flew overseas, and he, and he oversaw the trial of this witch doctor, the first of its kind in the history of its country. And the verdict came down that this, this witch doctor was declared guilty of attempted murder and would spend the rest of his life in prison waiting actually on death row. And Bob thought, what an amazing victory that this eight-year-old boy's life has been saved, that this man has been, justice has been done to him. And then he said he came home and was at his home in San Diego and he was reading his Bible and he read, you shall love your enemies. And he thought, that witch doctor's my enemy. What would it mean for me to love him? And so he went back to Uganda and he found the witch doctor in the prison that he was in. And he met with him face to face. And the witch doctor said, I'm sorry for what I've done. And the guy's like, you're just saying that because I put you behind bars. And then by the end of their first conversation, he says, I need forgiveness from Jesus like you have. And God, and he relates in the story how God has done a powerful work that they have schools training former witch doctors and their main textbook is the Bible that witch doctors in Africa are learning to read using the Bible. But it all started because one man asked himself, what does it look like to love this person? What does love require of me? Friends, what does love require of you today? Oftentimes it's the, the people we live with that we struggle the most in loving. What does love look like with the person that rode next to you to church today and is sitting next to you in the pew? Stop nudging them. Stop nudging them. <laughs> what does it look like to love them? What will love require of you this week when your family members are there and they're not leaving and they're there for several days? <laughs> what will love look like? What does love look like in our church? What will love require of you amongst the conflicts that happen just due to our own personal preferences. What does God's word say to us? It says that we need to be people who are known for our love. But friends, disagreements will arise in the church. We're human. We're from all over the world. We have so many different generations and cultures represented here. Disagreements will arise. So what does God's word say to those? First, we need to embrace the grace of God. That when we realize that we bring nothing to salvation but our own sin and it's all of Jesus, that puts us in a position of humility when dealing with one another. That we need to realize our identity that God came to create one new people of which every believer is a part of. And lastly, it means to practice sacrificial love. That we give up of ourselves, our preferences, our time, our energy to move towards one another and practicing the same type of love that Jesus has shown us. God, we thank you for this church. We thank you for the privilege it is to be a part of this body in this place in this time. God, I pray for us today that we would exemplify the kind of love for each other that your church should. That this place would be known for its love for all people. That it would be real and tangibly practiced amongst us. We praise you this morning for the grace of God. 
the grace upon which is the only way that we can be saved. We thank you for Jesus, that it's his work on the cross alone and his resurrection alone by which we can be saved. We worship you this morning. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.